Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast. Hope everybody enjoyed the previous episode, which was not really Marlins focused. I hope you guys still like that because it was investigative into Rob Manfred and his ascension to commissioner and how he used his legal prowess to get there. I hope you guys enjoyed that. It was kind of fun to venture out, do something a little different. If you guys enjoyed that, please let me know and I will do that from time to time. Of course, this episode is going to be much more focused on the Marlins, kind of a part two to the draft recap. Part one, which was before the Manfred episode, mostly focused on Max Meyer. I really wanted to give him an entire episode just to be able to really go in and out of all of the intricacies of his arsenal, his background. He's a very unique type of prospect that is going to be a little bit polarizing, I think, as we move forward. So it'll be interesting to see. I know Fangraphs is a little bit lower on him. MLB Pipeline is a lot higher on him. It's going to be cool to see how each prospect outlet feels about Max Meyer. I'm going to talk about guys that I feel like I know a lot about, specifically Kyle Nicholas and Zach McCambly in this one, because those two guys played a lot in the Cape. Kyle Nicholas was in the Cape all summer, and Zach McCambly was there for the first half of the season until he hit an innings limit from going so deep into starts constantly. He was really effective out there. Of course, if you haven't been keeping up with the previous episodes, I did play-by-play in Katuit for the Kettleers, the team that both of those guys in Nicholas and McCambly played for. So I got to watch them day in and day out, study them, talk to them, and really see them develop more Nicholas than McCambly because McCambly came out and was really good. But Nicholas got better as the season went on and carried that momentum into the shortened, abbreviated season this year where he was really effective. I will talk about Dax Fulton, not someone I have seen in person, but someone I've done a lot of research on, watched a lot of tape, and I have plenty of thoughts on the left-hander who's currently rehabbing from Tommy John surgery. Also, since then, I have talked to DJ Savillic in this virtual press conference that we had after the draft. He had some interesting thoughts. It was cool to be able to ask him some questions on the draft class, which, as we know, was very solid, and a lot of people... In the draft realm, those who cover the draft, those who cover prospects, really gave the Marlins a thumbs up on the draft, but it was interesting on how they used all six selections to go with starting pitchers, rather, or potential relievers, pitchers, period, instead of going for a bat, although they did pick up a couple position players in undrafted free agency, and we saw the Marlins go bat-heavy last year. So I'm going to start with Dax Fulton, because... I have plenty to say about Nicholas and McCambly for the reasons I just mentioned, but Dax Fulton is a really interesting prospect for the Marlins, the top left-handed pitching prep prospect in the draft, which is a unique opportunity for the Marlins to be able to pick up in the second round, and the reason why was because of the fact that he was rehabbing from Tommy John surgery, he had blown out his elbow in USA Team USA trials. Very unfortunate for Fulton because he was probably looking at a first-round opportunity with the fact that he's six foot six, a southpaw, sits in the low 90s, has a really good curveball. I think MLB Pipeline slapped a 65 grade on the curveball, which is in the mid-70s, but he manipulates the break really well, and it has a nice 12-6 bend to it. Then he has a changeup, which is already looking above average and has the potential to be maybe a plus pitch as he harnesses it in his development in pro ball. Fulton was originally committed to Vanderbilt, 
and then decommitted and signed with Oklahoma. But as it seems, it was always his intention to go in the draft as long as teams met his price tag, which probably dropped after the injury. But it was clear that if you wanted to get Dax Fulton, you're going to have to overslot him as he was probably falling into the late first, early second round. And some teams may not have wanted to do that with a guy coming off of Tommy John surgery, but there's plenty of teams that have been willing to do so and have been rewarded in doing so. And that was a point that DJ Savilic brought up, is this is a guy, yeah, he is going through Tommy John surgery, but the way it's timed up now is that the Marlins get to take over Dax Fulton's rehab process, which is great because instead of working out at his local PT place probably or whatever coach that he can find. I don't know what Dax Fulton's resources are over in Oklahoma, but not to slight whoever he was working with, it's going to be hard to beat an opportunity to train and rehab with a major league ball club and their resources. And the Marlins are excited to be able to help him nurse himself back to health. And an example of that happening in the past is with Jesus Lazardo, a local kid from Stoneman Douglas in Parkland. He was looking like a first-round prospect coming out of high school. He unfortunately blows his elbow out right around springtime of his senior year. He falls in the draft. I believe he goes third round to the Nationals, who would later trade Lazardo over to the Oakland Athletics in a swap for Sean Doolittle, who ultimately played a part in their World Series run last year, so you can't say that They'll regret the trade necessarily, but I think they'll be reminded of it as Lizardo is looking like one of the best young pitchers in the game and my favorite to win Rookie of the Year if this season happens this year or next year. He looked really good when we saw him at the end of last year and clearly was back stronger than ever from Tommy John surgery, pitching the wild card game last year and was hitting triple digits. This is a kid and Jesus Lazardo, who came back much stronger from his Tommy John surgery. We've seen that more and more now, and that might be because he was younger, right? He got the Tommy John in high school. He goes straight to the major league rehabbing and came back really strong. That could be something that happens with the Marlins and Dax Fulton. While Savillic didn't specifically mention Jesus Lazardo, he did mention the fact that they were eager to be able to help Fulton back to full health. Talking about his arsenal as it was before the injury, he had a fastball that sat mostly 90 to 92, could touch a three or four, a curveball in the mid 70s, as I mentioned earlier, with a plus grade and a changeup that's looking above average with the potential to be a plus pitch. That three pitch mix could be enough to make him a quality starter. The thing with a guy like Fulton is the ceiling is incredibly high. And you really don't know how high the ceiling is now, especially with the Tommy John surgery. But his ceiling would have been a big question going into the draft, whether he had the surgery or not, because a lot of teams are going to have a different perspective on a guy like this. A six foot six southpaw, 225 pounds, has a lot of room to fill out, which is a good thing, because that could mean he can put on some more weight and ultimately put on some more velocity. But something that stood out to me with Dax Fulton was the fact that he does not or did not use his body very well. In the tape that I watched, a very, very short stride. And when I read some other scouting write-ups, he was compared to Adam Wainwright. Wainwright, of course, is a righty, but another super tall guy that doesn't work above the low 90s or didn't even work above the low 90s in 
his prime. But Adam Wainwright, when you look at his video, still used his body more than Dax Fulton does. And you can understand it because Dax Fulton likely has been tall his entire life, right? He was probably ahead of most of his peers in terms of his height. It's pretty hard to teach a kid who's way ahead of his peers with his height to really push off that rubber, to really use his body when he doesn't really need to. He probably always had a strong arm, and it's one of those things where if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Fulton never had any problems throwing strikes. He was still sitting in the low 90s. He still had good command and had a good mix of pitches. So why change anything? The problem is, I'm not going to say that the short stride led to the elbow problems because when you look at the tape, his arm slot looks good, his upper body mechanics are very sound, and that's why you have that good command, which you rarely see from a lanky lefty, because repeating your mechanics could be a little bit more difficult for a guy with that much body and that much length to him. The fact that Fulton has no problem repeating those mechanics and throwing strikes consistently, that would have been the biggest concern for me. I'm not worried about him refining those mechanics especially with the lower half, and doing a better job of using his body because that's something a major league ball club can teach a kid no problem. We saw with Andrew Miller in the past, his issue was not as much using his body. He always had a long stride. He could not repeat his mechanics. It took Andrew Miller ultimately just going out of the stretch to be able to consistently throw strikes. That's not going to be a problem with Dax Fulton. Fulton his issue, I think, and it's not even an issue, it's just he can unlock more by using his lower half more. If you look at some videos, I'll end up posting some on Twitter, you can really see how short that stride is. When you look at tall lefties like David Price and CC Sabathia, those were guys that threw very hard, don't get me wrong, but their perceived velocity was even higher because of how close they were releasing the ball to home. I remember Sports Science did something way back when Sabathia was still with the Indians, and they were showing how he releases the ball from about 54 feet away, which in turn, of course, makes the ball get to you as the hitter much quicker, and the perceived velocity is higher than whatever the actual velocity is. Same thing with David Price. So Fulton's going to be a fun one to watch because we'll see how he comes back from the Tommy John surgery beyond just how he's going to pitch, but more importantly, how he's going to prevent another injury from occurring. Again, I'm not going to say that the elbow injury was from his short stride, but you could make the case that the shorter stride puts more pressure on the arm. Despite that, his hip and arm look like they're in a good spot around the release point, but when you're not using your body as much and relying on your arm, you might be able to get away with that as a younger kid. As you get older and as you're trying to get a little bit more on the fastball, that's where you could be straining the arm a little bit more. We'll see what the Marlins think about that and think about his mechanics when he gets a chance to come back and start throwing again. Nonetheless, a second round pick to get the best prep left-handed pitcher in the draft. That was an excellent pick by the Marlins. I expect him to still be an overslot, and it makes sense that the Marlins picked Max Meyer, who will likely be a slight underslot. I'm expecting that that money ends up going towards Fulton. Nicholas, I don't expect to get much more under the slot. Maybe he even gets a little bit over the slot as well. The other selections, I expect to be right around the value there. But without a doubt, Dax Fulton 
will be the more interesting to see where he slides in there in terms of how much of the bonus pool he takes up. But it makes sense that the Marlins savings on Meyer will be applied to him, and we'll see how it's applied to the rest of the guys in the draft. I won't have time to get to Jake Eater and Kyle Hurt. That's likely going to be another episode because the second half of this episode, I'm going to be focusing on the two Cape guys, Kyle Nicholas and Zach McCambly, who I'm very much looking forward to. Closing thoughts on Fulton. How does he compare to the other two Southpaws in the system? With Trevor Rogers and Braxton Garrett, they're a little bit similar. Tall, lanky lefties. They're not going to wow you with their fastball. With Rogers probably having the best heater of the trio, Braxton Garrett flashes the low 90s fastball and a really good curveball. So it makes sense that him and Dax Fulton look pretty similar. I would say Fulton has the higher ceiling, one, because he's younger, but two, because he seems like he has a lot more to be unlocked. He's a lot taller than Braxton Garrett. He's longer, and the command is better than Braxton Garrett's was around the time of his end of high school. Not that Garrett really had any massive command problems, but Fulton really impresses me with his ability to mix up all three pitches for a strike. Of course, Braxton Garrett also went under, underwent Tommy John surgery, so the Marlins have done this drill before with young lefties. Braxton's came a little bit later than Dax Fulton's, so that should work in Fulton's favor as well. But Rogers and Fulton, to me, are the two lefties that both six foot six. Fulton, obviously, four years younger than Trevor Rogers, but both very raw and have a lot to unlock still. Fulton has a lot more time to unlock it, and those two guys in Rodgers and Fulton have a chance to be more of a number two pitcher. I see Braxton Garrett more as a three or four, but a really good trio of lefties in this Marlins farm system that could offer a lot of upside, especially with Dax Fulton, in my opinion, offering the most upside of all three. The Marlins have a good chance of at least one of them making an impact on the rotation in the next few years, which is just incredibly valuable, as we know to have left-handed starting pitchers in the bigs. If two out of three work out, you are thrilled. If three out of three work out, you're over the moon. And the Marlins will have a surplus of southpaw talent, which might have been the only thing pitching-wise that the Marlins didn't have an excess of. A lot of good power right-handers, but a little bit lacking in the southpaw department. So that is something that Fulton fills. And going into the break... I will be ready to talk about Kyle Nicholas and Zach McCambly on the other side of it. I don't know about you guys, but I don't know what I would do without food delivery service, specifically Postmates. Postmates has helped me big time during these crazy times, have not been wanting to go out very much for obvious reasons. They will just deliver the food right to your door within the hour. But not only food, they can deliver your burger and sushi but also anything I need from Walgreens or 7-Eleven and leave it right outside my door, no contact delivery. Whether it's my favorite restaurant or something I need from a local convenience store, Postmates has you covered. Just download the Postmates app on iOS or Android, find your favorites and get anything you want delivered within the hour. More importantly, for a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, again, just download the app and use promo code LOCKEDON, one word locked on for $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. For my guys out there, you might have heard of Manscaped in the past. 
it is exactly what it sounds like. The number one in men's below-the-belt grooming for a long time now offers precision and engineered tools for an area where you definitely want to be very precise and careful. You can get 20% off using promo code Locked On. this time two words Locked On. If you were thinking about it before, a little taboo, didn't think you were going to buy it, well, now is the time you get 20% off, and again, it's delivered straight to your door. Normally, I tell you, let me know if you like the product, this one. You don't have to let me know, but I've heard nothing but good things about Manscaped and the things that it does. It's good for what you need it to do. That's manscaped.com, promo code locked on for 20% off and free shipping. So back to baseball, the two guys I've been really excited to talk about, that's Kyle Nicholas and Zach McCambly. Let's start with Nicholas, the compensation B second round pick by the Miami Marlins, a big right-handed pitcher from Ball State, and another high ceiling guy that you have an idea what you're getting, but you don't know how much you're going to get. And that's what the Marlins wanted to give a shot here. You could tell there was a trend with the prospects that they selected, either really athletic or a big power arm with a plus secondary pitch. The command was not really the forefront of the concern for the Marlins in their latter picks after Dax Fulton, as Kyle Nicholas does have legitimate command concerns. I'll go through his arsenal right now, and you can see what the Marlins saw in him. A fastball that sits 94 to 97, saw him hit triple digits multiple times, and a 70-grade fastball from MLB Pipeline, and I think across the board it's a consensus plus fastball for obvious reasons. It's effortless from him at 6'4", 225, a big body. He was an all-state basketball player as well with Dylan Dingler in his high school. The slider, though, I think is the most underrated pitch in his arsenal. Everyone talks about Kyle Nicholas's fastball. Every time he got on the mound in the Cape, really, it was just there was a buzz around the stadium. And there was a buzz around the ballpark, and you'd see just dozens of radar guns pop up. And when he'd hit those upper 90s fastballs on the gun, you'd just hear everybody ooh and ah, because it just was perceived velocity too, as I talked about earlier with Dax Fulton. But Nicholas is six foot four, really does use his body. His issue is more like we were talking about with the other guys, it's repeating his mechanics. And that was something that he got better at as the Cape season went on. He worked very hard at, and as he went into the spring, his command was better than it had ever been in his collegiate career. So the Marlins got Kyle Nicholas on an upswing in terms of his biggest concern. The fastball has hit triple digits multiple times, but he actually has a pretty good hold on where he wants to locate it. Typically, the concern is more with the location of the secondaries, though that fastball can get away from him at times. He'll overthrow it a little bit, and he's a guy that clearly doesn't need to reach back for a little bit of extra. It's an effortless fastball from him. The slider, as I was getting at before, only a 55 grade from MLB Pipeline, and that's the big thing for me. Look, I know MLB Pipeline has to scout hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of top-end prospects and have a pretty in-depth analysis on each of those guys. But this one puzzles me the most, I think, out of any of the guys that the Marlins had selected and any of the scouting write-ups I had read. As someone who saw Kyle Nicholas plenty and saw that slider more than enough, I have no idea how you cannot consider that a plus pitch. To me, at worst, it's a 60-grade slider, should be a 65-grade slider. It's in the mid-80s. He has 
a hard break to it in the mid-80s, and that was his strikeout pitch. He would blow the fastball by guys, but the fastball could flatten out at times, but a majority of his strikeouts came on the slider and the cape, and you're just going to have to take my word for that. That's also just going off of memory because the Cape Cod League stats are a little bit plain Jane. It's an old-fashioned league. Not going to be able to find how many strikeouts came on his slider, but just going off of my memory, that was the pitch that he would go to when he needed a strikeout. He had a lot of confidence in his catchers. Both Colton Kessler from Kentucky and Cody Pasick from Maine were really good defensively, and he had confidence in them because he would spike that slider, and not in a bad way. He would just bury it in the dirt when he was ahead 0-2, and a lot of times those guys would chase it. You know, and when he has someone like Will Banfield potentially that he's throwing to in the minors that he can trust, that he can put that thing in the dirt and that it won't get away from him, that's a really good opportunity for Kyle Nicholas to, you hear the term quote unquote waste pitch. I hate the term waste pitch because there's no such thing as a waste pitch. You don't just, a waste pitch would be throwing it into the stands, right? Every pitch has a purpose. And if you're ahead 0-2, Kyle Nicholas had the confidence to be able to spike that slider and say, chase it. If you don't chase it, I got three more pitches that I can work with before you get a free pass. The problem for Nicholas was that he was not getting into those 0-2 counts as frequently as he needed to. And I'm going to have to walk back something I said earlier. I mentioned that he, he did have good command of the fastball at times, but at other times, he didn't really have good command of any of his pitches. And that's where you saw the walk issues. Towards the end of the summer, that's where he was really clicking because the fastball was working. The slider is always a good pitch from Nicholas because even if it's not in the zone, if it starts somewhere near the zone, a lot of times he would have guys chasing it or it would be enough to have them thinking about it so that he could go to the fastball. But when he's falling behind guys 2-0, and 3-1, and and they're sitting on his fastball, that's when he would get into a little bit of trouble because it does have a 70 grade and I can understand why. But his fastball doesn't have the type of riding action or movement that Zach McCambly's does, which I'll get into next. And when you're in a hitter's count, if somebody's sitting on a fastball once you get to the upper levels, it doesn't matter how hard you throw it, as we've seen time and time again. These hitters in the in the next level will catch up to it. So for Kyle Nicholas, he was at his best, as any pitcher would be, when you get into pitcher's counts early. And that was the discrepancy between the early part of the summer where he struggled and the later parts of the summer where he was good. And of course, in the spring where he was incredibly effective, his last start of his collegiate career, he goes seven innings and punches out 17. I mean, 17 batters in one outing. It's something that you just don't see no matter who they're playing. I don't care who you're playing. It was against Sacred Heart and they actually, Ball State lost that ball game. So it's not like they were playing some terrible ball club or that a team that they were so much better than I'm not going to say Sacred Heart is a power five team but neither is Ball State regardless Kyle Nicholas shredded through collegiate hitters at a ridiculous rate to punch out 17 in just seven innings and that was something that Kyle Nicholas could never have done the seasons prior he was mostly working out of the bullpen in and out as a starter 38 appearances through his first two seasons 15 starts 108 and two-thirds innings 91 walks. I mean, it's obviously concerning. 133 strikeouts, though, in those 108 innings and 85 hits. So it's not like he's getting knocked around the yard. 85 hits in 108 innings is a pretty good number. It's nothing, you know, concerning. Of course, the 91 walks in 108 innings 
is absolutely concerning. And you go into the Cape, 30 innings pitched, 23 walks is not much better. 25 hits is not a bad mark, and he had six saves, and he punched out 40 batters. And some of his best outings came later in the season. If you saw on my personal Twitter account, I tweeted a video of him going back-to-back striking out Jackson Coots, who signed as an undrafted free agent with the Nationals, and then striking out Baron Radcliffe, who was a fifth-round pick by the Phillies, so two potential NL East foes. He strikes out back-to-back after he inherited two base runners and gets out of a jam. So that you see flashes of what he can be. But the Marlins are hoping he can be a starter. And I'm not going to rule out that he can be a starter after the improvement that he showed not only in the Cape, but then rolling into his abbreviated season in 2020, he made four starts, 23 innings, 37 Ks, and in 274 ERA. The most impressive thing, he only walked seven in 23 innings pitched. That is something he's never done in his collegiate career, didn't do in summer ball, except when you look at the end of summer ball, it's a small sample size, but in his last three outings which he only threw one inning, two inning, and then three innings, so that adds to six. He only walked a pair, and that was in the Cape Cod League postseason. So again, some of the best offenses in the Cape League, and eventually in the championship, he hammered down the last three outs to send the Kettleers to the championship, and then pitched a massive inning in a 7-6 win to make the Kettleers one game away from being Cape League champions, which they would eventually win the next game. But it was the one inning strikes out the side and just looked like a completely different pitcher. And if you look at his numbers throughout the Cape League, the game log, his ERA just steadily declined, the whip steadily declined, and he started to walk less and less batters, and he was started to be relied on in more high-leverage situations. Like I said, the Marlins are hoping that this man can be a starter, and there's no reason to believe that he definitely won't be yet because of the improvement he is showing on the mound. The big question and the very obvious issue for him was the repetition and mechanics. A big body, a guy who always relied on just being able to blow the fastball by players and allowing them to just chase after his stuff. Now, as the competition gets better, they're going to make you throw strikes. And if you just sit on that fastball, it's not going to be enough to get hitters out at the next level, which Kyle Nicholas has learned and he has refined his mechanics. You can see a big difference and I will get into it in some video later on Twitter, which you'll see after this episode is released, and the slight adjustments that he made in his mechanics so you can see the consistency that he found that this wasn't a fluke at the second half of the Cape season rolling into the spring. And how often do we see it with hitters, with pitchers, with so many different players that figure something out in the Cape? It's not only the coaches, it's their peers. They, they have a bullpen where they're spending time together with some of the other best pitchers in the country. And everyone has learned something from other best coaches from Power 5 programs. And they just like to spitball with each other and talk about things that they've learned to watch each other. It's like you have 30 coaches on your team with your teammates all around you because these are all the best players in the country. And they're all so happy to help each other because they all share a common goal. And that was the really cool thing about the Cape this summer is seeing how tight the team was. So that another aspect to it is the fact that the Marlins ended up drafting another guy from the same team. And both of these guys were thrilled to go to the same organization after I talked to them. And much of the Kettleers team was ecstatic to see two guys from Katuit go to the same ball club. 
And now Zach McCambly went one pick after. And Zach McCambly from Coastal Carolina might not be as much of a household name. You might have known Kyle Nicholas, but not Zach McCambly. You might not have known either, both not from Power 5 schools. So it's understandable that they might not have as much of the allure, the prospect allure, and the helium that some of these other players had. But Zach McCambly is another guy who figured it out in the Cape and rolled it in to his abbreviated spring. McCambly was just fantastic in every outing, but got better and better as the season went on. He hit an innings limit. He was only supposed to throw 20 innings because he had thrown a decent amount of innings in the spring before. And you see a lot of coaches put inning limits on their more prized arms. So it's understandable. But McCambly ended up going through his 20 innings faster than we expected because of the fact that in his final three outings, let me preface that Cape Cod starting pitchers typically don't go that deep into games because one, they want to preserve them. Two, a lot of them are on innings limits. And the coaches, the collegiate coaches in the Cape Cod League, they want to win. And so they want those guys to stick around a little bit later. So they'll pull them an inning or two early if it keeps them overall having you know one or two extra starts with them going into the summer as it gets later. For McCambly, unfortunately, he went five innings, four innings, then five and a third in his last three outings, which in the Cape is, I'd say, the equivalent to going seven innings in a normal nine-inning game in the spring in college because you're really just not going to stretch guys out. They rarely would throw more than 60, 70 pitches. So with McCambly, he started pretty solid, a solid four-inning start his first outing. He only had one where he struggled a little bit. It was still a game that the Kettleers won. They won all five outings that McCambly made, but he went two and a third in his second outing, giving up two earned runs. That was the worst that he did all summer. But then his final three, he goes five innings, one earned run, five hits, strikes out three. And then over his final nine and a third innings, he only gave up one run and he punched out 14, giving up only six hits. There are some questions as to his command. I don't see it. I understand that he he might not be putting the ball right on the catcher's glove every time, but walks are not an issue for him. It's a little bit more about utilizing the curveball as a strike pitch more than just a chase-it pitch because scouts say it breaks too much and that more advanced hitters will be more inclined to lay off of it. I've never really heard of that as an issue. It's pretty easy to manipulate your curveball as Dax Fulton does, and to tell Zach McCambly, hey, tone it down a little bit, I guess, is something that you can do. He can have variations of the curveball. The one that, quote-unquote, breaks too much can be that 0-2 curveball or that 0-1 curveball or a a curveball where you do not want to give in to a hitter, but I'm sure that he will find a way to manipulate it to have a more get-me-over version of it or just a more refined, consistent strike version of it. But Again, walks have never really been an issue for McCambly to an alarming degree like Kyle Nicholas. When you look at McCambly's earlier collegiate career, he was not as effective in being consistent and another guy that did go between bullpen and starting rotation, but that was more because he was not able to go deeper into games. When you look at McCambly's arsenal, 90 to 94 can top at 96 with riding action to the fastball. McCambly is a guy who can count on the fastball more than Kyle Nicholas, because of the movement that it has. The movement comes from spin rates that are off the charts. And a lot of teams have a different perspective 
on spin rates and those types of things. But point blank, Zach McCambly has some of the best spin rates in the entire draft, if not the best spin rates in the entire draft with the TrackMan system at Katuit and in the entire Cape had the TrackMan system going. I believe scouts had to pay money to get that information. And that's how these Cape teams are able to pay off the track man that it's not cheap. I know that for sure. But when I was able to look a little bit into the track man data and get a little bit of information from scouts or whatever it was, or sometimes I'd take a peek at what the uh, GM liaisons were, were pulling up. This was some of the best spin rates in the entire Cape League. Not even close. Talking about 99th percentile in both spin rates and spin efficiency on the fastball and curveball. The fastball has got a 55 grade, not because of the velocity, but because of the riding action. And then the curveball is slapped with a 65 grade, which I think is exactly accurate with the amount that it breaks or allegedly breaks too much. The concern with McCambly and the, the I guess the bullpen concern that some scouts have is that he doesn't have the third pitch yet. But the third pitch for me he can develop that. You know, he he still is just getting his feet wet as being a full-time starter. He showed that he could be a starter in the Cape and he rolled it in to his spring this year where he was effective in the abbreviated season as a starter, but in the past, going 6 and 3 with a 5-2-1 ERA in his 2019 season before the Cape, 61 innings he or 67 innings, excuse me, he struck out 76 walked 27 and went 6 and 3 with a 5-2-1 ERA. So, not the numbers you'd love to see from McCambly and that's where I think command was a little bit of a question. There's a difference between control and command and the command was the question with the fact that he was not able to locate the pitches where he wanted while he wasn't walking batters at an astronomical rate. He was getting touched up a little bit because of the fact that he was not locating his fastball and his curveball as much and as frequently as he'd like to. And I think that was largely because of the movement, right? You have that type of spin rate on your balls, on your fastball, and on your curveball. It's hard to control it a little bit, but that's where places like driveline thrive and using your spin rate to work in your favor rather than struggling because it moves so much. But again, I'd rather deal with a pitcher that needs to figure out how to harness his stuff than a guy that's trying to find how to make his stuff more effective. And for those who don't totally understand spin rates, a super boiled down version of it is that there's a direct correlation between spin rates and whiffs. Per driveline.com, which is, of course, the place that a lot of pitchers have gone. Bryce Jarvis out of this draft. Trevor Bauer is very well known to have really enhanced his stuff from driveline. They study the ins and outs of everything, sabermetrics, everything advanced, and specifically spin rates are a big focus when it comes to pitchers that see driveline and go there and go there to train. Bryce Jarvis, who went middle to late first round in this draft, was a guy that was sitting in the low 90s before and really worked on those spin rates. He went to driveline actually instead of pitching for the Kettleers, would have been on this team as well. Goes to driveline, works on harnessing his spin rates, improving his spin rates rather, and getting more effective and his fastball increased in velocity by two to three miles per hour. His changeup, which was already good, becomes probably the best changeup in the country. And he creates a third pitch that he didn't have, which is 
his breaking ball, which turned into a potential plus pitch as well. So there's there's a method to the madness at driveline, and it's very real. And McCambly didn't go there because he already had what they're trying to teach guys to have. And with McCambly, an example is a 92 to 95 mile per hour fastball with a 2500 spin rate or higher garners a 12% swinging strike rate. To compare that to a fastball that is 98 to 100 miles per hour with a 1900 to 2100 spin rate, that only garners an 8% whiff percentage. So basically, you could throw on average 4 to 6 miles per hour slower but have a higher spin rate and you will actually get a third more swing and misses. I know it's a lot of numbers, but basically it pays more to have a higher spin rate and spin efficiency than to just flat out throw harder. Nicholas has great spin rates as well. Just McCambly is a focus on this because of the fact that he, and I say only throws 90 to 94, it is perceived as much faster. And with the fastball, having that high spin rate and the highest spin efficiency is what makes the ball look like it is rising. And for hitters, that is one of the hardest things to pick up. You elevate that fastball and it looks like it's rising. It is so hard to lay off of. And it's one of the most coveted things for pitchers to have is that rising action to the fastball, which McCambly already has. And that creates an out pitch in a pitch that is typically your just bread and butter. So you pair that with the curveball. He has a really good one-two punch and a really good potential to already have plus pitches with the spin rates. The changeup is what really needs refining and the overall command needs to improve a little bit, but he showed that command shouldn't be a massive concern to the degree that it is with Kyle Nicholas, but both of them super high ceiling arms to sum it up and two guys that have top of the rotation type of stuff. I would say McCambly comes with a higher floor and a lower ceiling though we still don't know how good McCambly could be because he is still figuring himself out as a pitcher and still has these God-given abilities to spin the ball better than most guys in the majors already. I mean, his spin rates are better than way better than the major league average. As for Kyle Nicholas, I would say he has a higher ceiling just because of his flat-out ridiculous stuff. And even though Kyle Nicholas has a pretty solid spin rate on his fastball, it's an example that McCambly's fastball is almost as effective as Nicholas because of the spin rates that he puts up. And let's say Nicholas had a flatter fastball. You can make the argument that McCambley's is actually better, but the fact that Nicholas can pair the velocity with the spin rate is what makes his ceiling just untouchable. You know, you don't really know what it is. It could be anything. At the very worst with Nicholas, you're looking at a high leverage reliever. Obviously, that is a worst case scenario, but with the stuff he possesses, he could easily be a very good high leverage reliever. And you could see things pan out in a type of Andrew Miller fashion at the worst case. Andrew Miller is a very applicable comp to him in terms of the questions with repeated delivery and at worst being a really good reliever. But at best, you're looking at ace type of stuff from Kyle Nicholas if he can really harness it. McCambly, to me, is a starting pitcher through and through. He will figure out that changeup and refine the command a little bit more. But his one-two punch of his fastball and curveball, being that the curveball is already a plus pitch, 
He will figure it out as a starter. It's just how good of a starter will he be? Is he a middle-of-the-rotation guy? Or can that fastball play up to the degree that he becomes a top-of-the-rotation guy paired with the curveball? I'm sorry that I didn't have a chance to talk about Kyle Hurt or Jake Eater. I will talk about those guys in the next episode. And I'll even talk a little bit more about McCambly and Nicholas because I'm digging up some more information from the summer as I go and remembering more. It's hard to believe it was already a year ago. And these guys have both gotten a lot better since I saw them. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And I hope you are looking forward to some of my talks about Kyle Hurt and Jake Eater, who I also did see much younger in the NECBL two years ago. So Eater has improved a lot since I've seen him as well. A bunch of arms that the Marlins have got that have been steadily improving and that do come with a little bit of bullpen risk, but come with high ceilings and a lot to potentially dream on and look forward to. A lot more post-draft talk coming up and a lot more prospect talk on the horizon and hopefully a lot more conversation about the Major League team as we hope the Players Association and owners come to a deal. Hope everybody's doing well. Looking forward to talking to you guys again on the next episode. Be well, everybody. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.